0: It's time for Fish Facts TV.
1: Welcome to Fish Casting the Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner of Fish Facts TV. Um, We did an interview today. We ran a little long, so we didn't get to do our intro and conclusion. Um, So just going to take it in right here. Tim is on the regular video, just not in the intro. We got Luke Avgard, um, world record holder and a uh, lifeless fisherman, just awesome multi-species angler, um, you know, our first interview in a while, and he gets us a lot of really good information. Um, so I will let you see that awesome interview. Joy. All right, guys, this is our interview. We have uh, Luke Ovgard. I don't know if it's Ovgard or ofgard but I'll, I'll let you uh, give a little introduction of yourself and uh, why we got you on here.
0: Sounds great, man. I appreciate you having me. So it's Luke Avgard. The way I always tell my students is that it's like a protector of avocados in Avgard. So I don't know if that'll help, help you stick it, but whatever the case may be, that's fine. Um, I am a high school teacher. That's my day job. I teach high school business classes, but I am a really passionate angler. I love to fish. Basically, if I'm not at work, I am out there fishing. So fix my camera here just so you all can, can actually see my face and not the ceiling. And uh, what I love to do most is fish. So I know I mentioned before in the past, i talked to you, said that I'm a lifeless angler, but I don't have to be catching new species. Most of the time I'm trout fishing. And so that's what I do most here in Oregon. And it doesn't have to be something new. It doesn't have to be exotic, but I think we're going to talk about some exotic fish today, right? Yeah. um, We were thinking we would start out
1: with the exotics and then maybe finish up with the trouts if that works with you.
0: Absolutely. Works great.
1: All right. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about life listing and kind of about it as a hobby and what yeah. drew
0: you to it? Absolutely. So life list fishing, or species fishing, or species hunting, or what I like to call it my species quest, is a fairly new and fairly novel idea. Where it built off of bird watching and the effective idea of the life list. Where in bird watching, you know, you go out, you see a bird, and you're like, "All right, I got that one. You check it off your list," and you keep a running tally and it's somewhat competitive. And fishing sort of grew out of that, except the difference is we don't just want to see the fish, we want to go out and want to catch the fish. And so there are some subsets within fishing life listing, but the vast majority of folks who do it, it's all about catching a fish on hook and line and going out and catching as many species as you can. And so it's been something that I've fairly recently gotten into, even though I was always a multi-species guy, I just loved to fish. And so I would go out and catch anything I could, but now it's much more intentional, much more targeted. And so instead of just going out and hoping something bites, you're hoping very, very specific fish that you haven't caught before bite.
2: Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I'll, I'll hop in here. Um, you know, you mentioned being out on the West Coast um, and this life listing or, or species quest. Yeah. Does it matter whether you use um, fly rod or spinning tackle or, or what is the tackle base or, or is there yeah. really no limits as long as you're using a fishing rod of any style or, or design? Yeah, so
0: everyone's different. Um, there's a couple guys who do fly only. There's a couple of guys who do spin fishing only. And it's one of the beautiful things about it is there's so many different variations that you can almost set your own rules. You know, it's not a, a formalized sport. Generally, people agree that, you know, it should be caught on a hook shouldn't be snagged but that's pretty much it in fact some of the applications don't even require a rod some folks will go out and you know they'll use a hand line or they'll use a, a tankaro rod something that doesn't require a reel at all and so the beauty of it is in its variety you can catch a fish any way you can imagine and it's all going to count towards that life list
1: all right that's uh that's really awesome i know we have one specific life list we want to save for a little bit But can you just tell me about uh, some of the coolest stuff you've caught, maybe a highlight of four or five species or maybe
0: stuff you could recommend to uh, some of our listeners? Oh, man, kind of tough. But I I would honestly say one of the species that really gets overlooked is more a a group of species would be suckers. So in your backyard, you probably almost anywhere in the United States and Canada have a couple suckers, Um, whether they're fish that have sucker in their common name or it's more red horse or buffalo. These are fish that you can catch almost year round? Um, they're going to take baits, they're pretty fun to catch. Sometimes they'll even take flies or small lures when they're spawning. They fight really hard, they eat a very comparable diet to trout. And so, if you like trout, you know, suckers are going to be pretty comparable in flavor. And so, that's one that gets really overlooked. And uh, there are dozens of species all across the United States and Canada, and even down in the parts of Mexico. So, if you're a North American angler who likes to fish, this is a really accessible way to get into life listing um, that you probably don't need to completely reinvent the wheel to do just go out use a lightweight slip sinker uh a leader and float a worm and you're probably going to catch some sort of sucker if you're at it long enough some other ones that i really like geez uh i think micros micro fishing is another piece of the life listing community that's really risen to popularity in recent years and that's basically just using really tiny hooks and really tiny bait to catch really tiny fish on purpose, and it's it's really foreign to a lot of people because they're used to the idea of going out catching the biggest fish, and you know you're here trying to catch fish sometimes that are shorter than your thumb. And so one another group of species that I really really love would be marine sculpins, so um, saltwater sculpins that you're catching in tide pools. So a lot of people have done the tide pool thing, but going out there with a tiny hook, tiny piece of bait, and trying to convince these fish to bite. That's another really enjoyable uh, group of species that you can chase and that I've caught a lot of over the years. They're more common on the West Coast, but there are some East Coast marine sculpins as well. You can catch them day or night, although going out with a headlamp and a tide pool at night, I don't know, it's pretty awesome. So I tend to do that a lot. Uh, geez, another species that I really, really like, another species group at least, would be sharks. I think I mentioned before, love shark fishing. It's probably my favorite type of fishing out there. And there are just so many sharks they're, they're circumglobal. So hot seas, warm seas, doesn't matter where you are. If you flow out, uh, if you throw out a live bait, you are probably going to catch a shark if you're at it long enough. And, you know, there's just something about a fish that can not only bite back and, and hurt you, but a fish that could kill you just as easily as you could kill it. Maybe I'm an adrenaline junkie. I kind of like that. Um, feels like the, the stakes are a little bit more equal because either party could lose me or the fish. And not only that, they fight really hard, they're fun to catch. And one, one fish in Florida I think that's really underrated actually is the, is the nurse shark. So to choose a specific species, you get a, a grunt or a snapper, you know, whatever the mi- minimum legal size is for snapper, uh, or a grunt up to about 14 inches long, floated out there on a seven-knot circle or a nine-knot circle, you're eventually going to catch a nurse shark. And it's really fun. They're pretty safe as far as sharks go, so they're a good way to get into shark fishing even if they bite you, you know, you're not going to lose a hand. You're just going to be bloodied up a little bit. It's like rubbing your hand on sandpaper. And so they're fun, they're strong, not dangerous, almost everywhere in Florida. And that's a really awesome species that I think doesn't get enough credit. Let's see, you said four or five. So another one that I really, really, really like to fish for that is uh, a little bit more localized also in Florida would be tarpon, but not like the big tarpon you're thinking of. I, I really like chasing small tarpon on trout here. So the same stuff I'm using to catch trout or bass, go out for a Rapala or a swim bait. And I, you know, we're talking tarpon under 20 pounds, but go out in one of these freshwater streams or a backwater lagoon, fish some mangroves I really, really love tarpon fishing. I've hooked about 20 times more than I've landed doing it this way, but something that I absolutely love. Um, see here. One other fish that I really, really like catching that I caught recently for the first time, um, was a moray eel. So I went to Hawaii earlier this year and for the first time I fished for moray eels. And I don't know, there's just something about these fish. Again, they can mess you up. I got bit by one and thank God I had a glove on because it was just completely tore up my hands. These are fish that are maybe only one or two pounds, but they're so strong. That they're going to break 60, 70, 80 pound line without any issues just by backing into their hole and breaking you off in the rocks. So, eels are another one that's, that's really fun. I, it's a weird species that you probably wouldn't fish for on purpose unless you're a lifeist lister, but these are fish that get really big, fight really hard. And I don't know, there's just something about a fish that can hurt you that kind of makes it appealing to me.
2: Yeah, Luke, I totally agree with the, uh, the tarpon aspect, um, yeah. the small tarpon on light gear. Uh, you know, if you listen to this program at all, you hear us talking about light tackle all the time. Um, I would much rather prefer those juvenile tarpon in the backwater to yeah. any of those big ones where, where you're fishing in the passes or whatever. That's, that is just a lot of fun. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's kind of funny where, you know, you mentioned the micro fishing and then mentioned sharks and tarpon. Yeah. Um, with, with those micros, are are you sight casting for them, or how are you even doing that? Because that's just so foreign to me. You know, we don't yeah. really have like I've never even seen any of that. Besides, you know, fishing for like really small freshwater fish or trying to catch bait, but it just seems like just way out there.
0: It totally is, and I think that's the aspect of lifeless fishing that is just the craziest to most people, especially people who already fish. Because the idea of going out and catching a sucker or an eel, you know, most anglers eventually are going to run across those anyway. But the idea of intentionally catching stuff so small, there's no way you would ever eat it. And in most cases, stuff that's so small, you wouldn't even use it as bait. That's, that's really foreign to people. But they're almost everywhere. And I think that's one of the biggest appeals of micro fishing: is every water in the U.S., freshwater, saltwater, lakes, ponds, the ocean, they all have micros. They're really easy to catch. And since there's not much of a fishery for them, these are fish that by and large have never seen a hook before. And so you don't need a lot of skill for most, most micros. Some of them are very specialized and very difficult, but most of the time, if you live near uh, a Sculpin or a Blenny or a goby, these are fish that are really easy to catch. They're aggressive. They're little tiny predators. And so, yeah, you're usually sight fishing night or day. Most of the time, if you take a headlamp out wherever you are, that's my favorite way to microfish. fish. It's a lot more effective for most species, although there are some that only bite during the day, but you're typically sight fishing these fish with uh, a piece of bait smaller than a booger, you know, and that's that's what they're biting. Uh,
2: that, that's, yeah, that's pretty wild. Maybe I'll,
0: maybe I'll have to give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, one of the cool things about it is it lets you see what's in the water. So for me as a trout angler, I didn't know i I mean i knew generally what species were around but when a fish is this big it's really difficult to know oh my gosh what type of chub is that but then you reel it in you catch it you're like okay well now i can tailor my baits a little bit more to exactly what's present here where i'm trout fishing today or where i'm bass fishing or walleye fishing or tarpon or whatever you're after so i think all in all microfishing will make you a better angler if in no other way than bait selection
1: so when you go micro fishing, what size hooks do you use? I've kind of dabbled myself in yeah. the, the mini fishing. You know, when I lived in American Samoa, you know, targeting when it was, when the weather was bad, um, I would just go fish right off my dock and there wasn't yeah. a big fish. It was more small trigger fish, snappers and groupers. Like right. how
0: micro are we talking here? So there's a little bit of debate. And I think in recent years, people have started to expand what microfishing was. But the original idea of microfishing comes from Japan. It was where a group of anglers who lived in an area where they didn't have bigger fish, like trout and bass that they could readily fish for, like they did in other parts of Japan, decided, hey, I still want to fish. I want to come up with something sporting. And so they targeted this little tiny fish called a bitterling. If you Google them, they are rarely bigger than, you know, your 9 store goldfish that's going to be dead in a year. And the Japanese bitterling was the original micro fish it was what people went after Um, the idea was you're trying to catch the smallest fish instead of catching the largest fish and so the goal was they would take a quarter or a different coin Um, obviously it was japan so some sort of yen coin that was a measuring tool and the idea was to keep it as small as possible and put your fish entirely within the bounds of the smallest denomination of coin that you could find and so Obviously, these were people who liked to fish, but they didn't have a better option. So at first it was sort of a, well, there's nothing better around, but it caught on because it's easy. It's fun. You can do it anywhere. It's uh, something that's really enjoyable for kids or even non-anglers because very often these little tiny fish are cute or they're you know, really colorful. And so when I'm talking microfishing, I'm talking fish that at full size will never be more than six inches long. So not like a juvenile of a fish, but a fish that's just really, really small. It just doesn't get that big. I'm typically using hooks designed for this. So the Japanese call them Tanagas, which are hooks designed to catch tiny, tiny fish. So on average, the average micro, I'd say is probably about three inches long. Um, Some of them quite a bit smaller, some of them a little bigger, but generally you're using hooks that if we were to put them into the standard hook sizing denominations, probably size 20 or smaller. And historically, the only hooks you could find that small were nymphing hooks for fly fishermen. And so, yeah, if I'm using a nymph and I happen to catch a 20-inch trout, that's not micro fishing. You know, this is me trying to catch that four-inch base in the same riffle with that you know 20-inch trout.
2: Yeah. I, I don't know if my eyes are good enough
0: to uh, to tie any of these hooks. So they, do they come pre-rigged? I mean, that, that's they true. do. So thankfully they're pre-snelled. Most of the ones I okay. use are pre-snelled. It's a lot more expensive. They cost about a dollar a piece that way. But like you said, man, I, I have fat fingers and my eyes are getting older every day, so I can't do it. There are a couple guys I know in Florida who snell their own. They use a slightly stronger line. So instead of the standard one pound thread that stuff comes on, they're smelling you know two or even four pound fluoro on there which is definitely advantageous if you hook something bigger but you know <laughs> it's it's not worth the effort for me and so i just use the freestyle hooks
2: yeah that, that that totally makes sense because yeah there's absolutely no way i could do that now with the micro fishing and, and with the other fishing uh yeah. obviously you, you're passionate about fish, is you know generally i mean obviously you yeah. wouldn't get into this unless you were Are you um, someone that is only catch and release or do you keep certain fish as well uh, to consume?
0: Absolutely, so I love fish. Uh, Most of my favorite foods are shellfish and fish. However, I'm a pretty firm believer that if it comes out of fresh water, it's not worth eating. Now there are exceptions, you know, salmon, but I've never had a freshwater fish other than salmon that even comes close to a very mediocre saltwater fish in overall table fare. So generally, if I'm catching it in fresh water, I'm letting it go and unless i'm using it using it for bait but most of the fish i eat are saltwater fish everywhere i've traveled i try to sample some local fish see what i like the best where i live in oregon still nothing has come close to the the uh, bottom fish of the pacific northwest fish like cabazon which is my personal favorite it's uh, actually the largest sculpin species on earth so not this big they get up to about 40 pounds they eat almost exclusively dungeness crab. And so their meat tastes like crab, it's really sweet, it's really flavorful, favorite fish on earth. And then there's a couple other species up here, fish like cod, um, similar big toothy bottom fish, um, a couple species of flatfish we have in the area, sand dabs, some of the halibut species. Those are my, my favorite fish. Those are the ones that I'm gonna keep every single time. Elsewhere, it just kind of depends. If it's in the ocean, maybe. If it's in fresh water, almost definitely not. Hmm.
1: All right, before we start asking you about some trout tactics for Tim's trip, we want to do our fish of the week. All our regulars know um, we're going to do something a little different. The peacock hind or peacock grouper, also known as cephalopholis argus, um, known as the blue spotted grouper and the celestial grouper. Luke, can you tell us anything about the peacock hind?
0: Absolutely. So this is a fish that was introduced from the South Pacific to Hawaii by the Hawaiian state government. It was a grouper. Groupers are fantastic eating. They're hard-fighting fish. They're really popular sport fish. And so the idea was, as the population of Hawaii began to expand and grow and more people started moving out there and relocating from the mainland following World War II, they thought this would be a really good opportunity for Locals to have a fish that they would not only want to catch, but that they would want to eat as well. And it is a popular sport fish. You mentioned American Samoa further south. Um, and so they thought, hey, why not? We'll put it in Hawaii. Well, as is so often the case with uh, government interference in fisheries, it proved to be just an absolute disaster. So the fish was one of the only uh, mid tier predator species. In Hawaii, there's not a lot of species that we would find in Florida. You don't find snuff. You don't find tarpon. You don't find a whole lot of these fish that are intermediate predators. And so it really filled that niche right off the bat. Peacock grouper, locally called Roy in the Hawaiian language. I guess actually that's Samoan, but it, it was carried forward. And that's what the locals call it. This was something that they thought was going to be a great boon. And at first it seemed like it was. They immediately started a really popular sport fishery. They started catching them. They grew to decent size, three, four pounds pretty easily. And so the locals, particularly spear fishermen, got into going after them. Unfortunately, within about 10 or 15 years, they started to realize there was a connection between people eating the roi or peacock grouper and ciguatera poisoning. And so since these fish eat primarily uh, whatever's available to them, And in Hawaii, whatever's available available is is generally gonna be reef species. After eating so many reef species, the ciguatera toxins build up and these fish become outwardly, just fine, but inwardly full of this toxin, which in limited quantities can make you really sick and in high quantities can actually kill you. And so recent studies in Florida have shown that almost 90% of all ciguatera cases in the Hawaiian islands have been related to people eating roy. And so nowadays it's generally considered best practice not to eat these fish. However, since they're invasive now, since they don't really serve a a purpose for locals to consume, the government has taken a completely different course. And for about 15 or 20 years, it's been kill them on site, but leave them. Um, Of course, this creates some other issues because the secretaria toxins are not being removed from the system, but just being put in the water for a bigger barracuda or a bigger roy or a shark or even trigger fish to pick apart and so it stays in the environment so best practice now is generally believed that you should take the fish out and you should bury it because then those toxins dissipate in the earth um, they're not contributing back to the reef although they're so widespread it's probably to the point where they're never going to be removed from the environment and so anglers are just encouraged to kill them remove them from the water and to definitely, definitely not eat these fish. It's not worth it.
1: Yeah, we in Florida have plenty of invasive problems, you know, especially the lionfish. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, I did a whole paper on that one time about different, um, you know, government ways that they could, you know, extirpate a fish from an area, but it's obviously it's not easy and it takes a lot of money. Um, and unless the governments are willing to do that, um it probably isn't going to happen uh, exactly so i and have it mean, was on my life list uh but it was from american samoa now okay. Hawaii. but they are beautiful fish what about oh, you are. You know anything about these uh peacock groupers well
2: until about five minutes ago i didn't know anything about them but uh <laughs> luke gave us a pretty comprehensive breakdown um i learned a lot there i and appreciate it that was great um Sound like a a really interesting fish, and um, you know maybe if I ever make it to Hawaii or, or someplace over there, I'll I'll give it a shot, and it, it, at the very least take a couple out of the uh, the ecosystem to try to cut down on the ciguatera uh, issue.
0: Yeah, it's I mean it's it's all we can do, and I think sort of Tanner as you alluded to, they're probably not going to get rid of them without an absurd amount of money. But one of the things that that anglers and the government can do is, is just create that informational awareness at the very least, make sure people aren't eating them. We don't want any more people to die because it's a very avoidable problem. Um, and at the same time, just like you said, Tim, if you got catch a couple, when I was in Hawaii earlier this year, I caught two, one of them was a tiny little thing and the other one was, was pretty large. It was actually a new hook and line world record for the species. They get way bigger than the one I caught. It was about four, four and a half pounds. They spear them up to about 10 pounds, but they get smart. And after a certain size, they just sort of figure out, you know what, I probably shouldn't bite this hook. So one more side note, if you do catch one, just make sure you don't lip them. They are uh, very, very toothy and much more so than the, the grouper species you'd find in Florida. So be very careful if you if you land one, probably not in your best interest. To, interest, excuse me, to lip that fish. Uh, that, that's good advice. Uh, I like how you just nonchalantly said,
2: "Oh yeah, it's a it's a world record," not <laughs> without without really planning it up. That was a uh, pretty smooth. And, uh, that, that's wild. I think I would be tooting my own horn a little bit.
0: But. It, well, that's one of the upsides of lifeless fishing. You're catching fish very often that really no one else wants to catch. And if any fish is capable of attaining a pound, it can be an IGFA world record. And so everyone knows what all the sailfish records are, and the snook, and the tarpon and the permit because everyone's out there fishing for them but no one's fishing for these weird fish so one upside of of lifeless fishing probably going to catch a world record at some point and uh you know get a little bit of bragging rights out of it in the process
2: well i think you may have convinced me i'm going to try to find some of these size 20 hooks or (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean i don't know I, i i the whole thing with the micros and and all that i know i've mentioned it. it's just very foreign so I, yeah. I can't imagine there's a lot of people doing it where i'm at so maybe uh maybe i can bring that to to this Absolutely. this area
0: yeah it's a lot of fun and if you like to fish the other great thing about micro fishing is it's not tied to a season there's no regulations really so you know if it's a bad day conditions aren't right to go what you really want to go chase what you really want to grab your micro rod go still have a fun day on the water catch a ton of fish and you know tell all your friends about it afterwards they just might be interested if they don't make money for it <laughs> all right we don't want to hold you too long but we
1: still want to get a little bit of trout talk in
0: yeah
1: Tim you want to start asking some trout tactics since you're going to be up in uh, Luke's neck of the woods in a couple months
2: yeah um, I, I've never been up that way um, I've never been to any any you know out, out west to California or or, or anything, Um, Oregon, any of those places. Um, I'm going to be in Pacific City in Oregon. I don't know how familiar you are with with that area um, in early June. So something that what I'd like to do is get on, you know, really as many species as possible. Um, I'm probably going to look into doing, you know, potentially a charter or something just because I'm only bringing out one small rod. But Um, Anything you can tell me about if you know the area I'm kind of putting you on the spot or any tips, tricks, just in general, could be freshwater, saltwater. I kind of have an open schedule. We want to do some hiking, want to do some fishing. So um, just really anything you can tell me.
0: Absolutely. Um, So I've been to all the Oregon coast. I'm looking up exactly where it is right now because I've never fished in Pacific City. But okay, good to know. So it's, it's very close to both Tillamook and Lincoln City, both of which I fished a lot. Um, first of all, spend some time in Tillamook. You know, Oregon's a foodie state—not about fishing, but some of the best food, some of the best coffee, some of the best beer you've ever had. Take some time, go into Tillamook. It is the largest producer of cheese in North America, so if you like cheese, go tour the factory; it's pretty cool. But while you're over there, there's a ton of different options. Um, you said you're going to be there. What time of year again? Uh, early June. Early June. Okay. So there might be some salmon available to you in the, in the nearby rivers. It's right next to the Neskewin river. Um, There are five rivers that feed the Tillamook Bay a little bit to the north. And so there's tons of options. If you want to do salmon fishing, my advice, get a charter, go out on the ocean and troll. Unfortunately your craziest day you've ever seen, you know, on, on one of the jetties in Florida, it has nothing on opening day of a North coast salmon river, you'll find people every 10 feet for miles. And so it's a zoo, I, I hate it. I've done it a couple of times. I don't fish salmon in fresh water anymore because of it. But if you take a charter, go out on the ocean, you control for them. It's if not quite as you know enjoyable. You're not fighting them on a light rod, but you're way more likely to catch a few. And it's a lot of fun. You can also look into rockfish salmon combo trips. So um, rockfish are the big The big fish in Oregon saltwater, Uh, black rock fish are about 80% of our recreational catch and something like 60% of the commercial catch. So basically, they look like a bass. They look functionally like a largemouth bass. They're just a little bit darker and they taste really good. So you can use anything you would use for a bass. Most common methods are jigging um, in deep water with swim baits or big leadhead jigs. They'll also take cut bait. They'll also take um, smaller curly tail grubs or tube jigs. At night, you can fish off the jetties with pretty much anything you would use for bass. I've caught them on topwaters, I've kind caught of them on flies, I've caught them on rapalas, you know, jerk baits, anything. They're a really, really forgiving fish. You can catch them day or night. And that would be, you know, if you're just kind of a guy who's never fished the West Coast, a really good way to get your feet wet. Just, I'm saying that figuratively, don't actually get your feet wet. It's really easy to fall off the jetties at night. I've done it before. I have friends who've done it. So swear a headlamp. And uh, that'll keep you from taking a spill. Um, Rockfish are a really great opportunity. In that area, in Tillamook Bay, there's also a decent surf perch fishery. So these are smaller fish, um, comparable in size, body shape, and, you know, table quality to like porgies or sheep's head back in Florida. So much easier to catch though. So you can use regular worms. You can use shrimp. You're probably just going to be using a high-low rig. And a couple species live near rocks, a couple species live in the surf. It just kind of depends on what you want to do. Smaller hooks, again, very comparable uh, setup to what you would use for like a sheep's head back home, except you're probably going to catch more surf perch. They're not quite as picky. Um, see what else is, is near there. The trout fishing on the coast isn't that great in terms of size. You go inland, that's where you see some of the big trout, you know, the huge predatory uh, cutthroats and red band trout, but there's a really good coastal cutthroat trout fishery out there. Probably the most beautiful cutthroat strain, in my opinion, just completely spotted, head to tail, beautiful fish, aggressive fish. They don't get that big, but you can catch them on virtually anything, flies, spinners, spoons, rapalas, swim baits. Most of the rivers don't allow bait, so just be careful, Uh, check the regulations closely, but they're big predators. You're going to be shocked what size baits these freshwater fish would hit. I'm a big Rapala guy, so I'll usually take a Rapala and cut one or, one or two of the hooks off, so it's either a single or a double hook, and fling those, or swim baits, which just have a single hook, the ones that I like to use, you'll catch you know 16-inch fish on 4-inch lures pretty regularly, and that can be a lot of fun. Every now and then, you might catch a steelhead or a salmon there as well.
2: No, that that's a lot of information. I, I appreciate it, you know, having never been out there and don't really know much about it um i'm excited you know it's kind of like going to a new area which it is and and not not knowing what's going to translate and really just kind of seeing what works and giving it a shot and catching all new things um so i'm I'm super pumped about it uh i I think you know as i've been kind of planning out the trip i got about a week out there i I think it would benefit me to take a charter out you know maybe in the early part and and pick the captain's brain too if he's local and, and see what yeah. I can do but absolutely um, you know I'm, I'm going out with my wife so fishing isn't the top priority for her but uh okay. she's uh she's she understands that I'm passionate about it and, and we're going to put some time aside to do it so um, and you mentioned you mentioned Tillamook the uh the uh the cheese factory uh, that that was already on the list so that just, okay. that that
0: that helps it um okay. okay she really wanted to go there so so, right across yeah, the definitely. street from the cheese factory, there's a, it looks really sketchy, but there's this fantastic, fresh, local fish and seafood market. It's a more of a lunch place. Go there. It's called the Old Oregon Smokehouse. There's also a coffee shop, a local coffee roaster right across the street. Fantastic, like fantastic food, fantastic coffee. Definitely worth your time. Um, and if your wife likes fish, You're going to have a good time. You'll least have a chance selling around fishing after she tastes one bite of our local Northwest fish. Nothing in Florida comes close. I know grouper's supposed to be, you know, fantastic. All these other things take your worst Florida, your best Florida fish. It's like a very mediocre rockfish cut in Oregon. And, uh, then you got cabson and ling cod, which are on their own level anyway. So Wow, that, that sounds great.
2: I, I appreciate all the advice and not just with fishing, but with some local fare, so appreciate Absolutely, it. Absolutely,
0: man, yeah, <laughs> definitely.
1: Yeah, you're, you're setting the bar pretty high. Maybe uh, I'll have to come check it out there myself. Um, yeah. running a little long, let's try to get in one more question then I wanna give you time to either ask questions of us or talk sure. through social media. We, we got five minutes left on the Zoom clock. Um, Perfect. So are our, our hard stop. Uh, okay. So fishing in Oregon, I just want to get a, some tactics on either the, the river trout or the river salmon about like what types of flies you like to use. You mentioned Rapalas, um, okay. but what about for those of us who are more interested in fly fishing, um, yeah. what patterns or what types of
0: flies do you like to use? Absolutely. So a lot of guys would disagree with me here, but I'm a big believer that The exact lure, the exact fly doesn't matter. It's just about getting the the rough right shape and size. And so when I'm fly fishing and I do fly fish quite a bit, I mostly use streamers. So a lot of people get trained on the idea that these hatchery trout sort of ruined American fish trout fishing with that idea that, you know, they're going to take dry flies all day long. That's just not the case. Most rainbow trout, they're native to the Northwest. What wild native rainbow trout eat is smaller fish. And so if you're trying to catch these big native rainbows or bull trout or lake trout, they're eating other fish. So you should be simulating those. And I typically use an articulated streamer about four to six inches long. I have half a dozen different color patterns I like. Pretty much anything will work. The key is just making sure that it's big enough. So for most of our trout, these are big fish. Three to five to six inch streamer is going to work for most of the rainbows if you decide to chase bulls in the Metolius, which is another really cool opportunity, bigger, bigger still, six to 12 inch lures. Um, Streamers, you know, like pike and muskie streamers, that's what we use for the the bull trout there. So treat it like a lure in the water, fish it just like you would fish a lure. You don't really have to worry too much about drifting or patterns. You want it to look like a minnow in the water or just look like a small sucker or a juvenile trout because that's what the bigger fish are eating.
1: All right, Tim, you got anything else?
2: Uh, No, I I know we're tight on time. I wanted to give Luke a a chance if he had any questions for
0: us or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to be coming to Florida again this summer. I do a big road trip every year. And if I am trying to plan a trip in the summer, I've never taken a boat out of Florida. What's a boat that you guys would recommend that's going to be a pretty high volume um, species load and is going to catch me a bunch of fish? Um, I'll hop in, um,
2: just as far as you're talking about a charter, like a head boat, like a, like, yeah, a, boat like or, a, or a
0: rental or an area that you'd recommend that's fairly diverse. Where's where's going to be a good place for me to go out and catch, you know, five, four or five new species on a charter boat.
2: Ooh. Um, I know you spent some time in the Keys. Um, yeah. I don't know, just not knowing what you're really targeting, that, that one's kind of tough because I, I could recommend some, you know, like offshore stuff, um, but sure. maybe you're looking for more, you know, Almaco Jacks and Amber Jacks, or I'm thinking groupers and
0: snappers. Do so you kind of have anything okay. in mind? I've caught I, virtually none of those. So any anything you'd recommend would be a good starting point for me.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. Any of the head, vo- head boats out of Miami, Fort Lauderdale are good. Okay so you can get, um, I would recommend the longer days. Um, some of them, if you do the half day trips, you're not gonna get the, the more interesting varieties. You know, if you get the full day trips, you're gonna get out a little deeper. Maybe you'll get a tuna, maybe you'll get the yellow eye snapper, the black fin snapper, the um, okay. million snapper, you know, the deeper fish that, cause you can get your yellowtail mangrove lane, you know, right. you get all those from shore. The ones exactly. that you can't get from shore if you go out of Tampa where Tim lives, um, even their offshore trips, it's mostly grunts and lane snappers and like other nope. fish that you could catch from shore. But yeah, my, my, I, I haven't gone out of the keys on the headboats too much. Um, but when I have, it hasn't been great. It's the, I've had the best luck fishing a, a couple different headboats and I can give you the names later, um, okay. out of Miami and Fort Lauderdale on those longer, uh,
0: longer trips. That would be awesome.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. You can just get to deeper water way quicker than you can here. The, the the west coast of Florida is so shallow. So I agree with everything Tanner just mentioned. Okay, cool. Awesome. Hey, I
1: keep Luke, that in mind. Uh, just announce your socials, and uh, we're we got a minute on the clock.
0: Perfect. So uh, my name is Luke Ogard, As I said before, um, I write a fishing column. I write a fishing column called Caught Obgard. and comes out every week in a bunch of newspapers in the Northwest. But if you're interested in reading about a variety of different types of fishing, you can subscribe directly. I have a Patreon account. You can subscribe to my weekly column as well as see all of my past work. Costs a dollar a month. If you're interested, that would be www.patreon.com slash cot C-A-U-G-H-T, Avgard O-V-G-A-R-D. I'm also on Fishbrain and Instagram at LukeAvgar. So if you're interested, you can see some of those exotic species I talked about.
1: All right, guys, I hope you really enjoyed that. Uh, Remember to like and subscribe to Luke on Instagram. Um, Thanks for coming out. Remember, if you have any questions, we got a really good question for next week uh, that we wanted to do today. But again, that ran a little long with that awesome interview. And uh, yeah, remember to like and subscribe to our page and give us the five-star rating on iTunes. Thanks.